All right, ladies and gentlemen, from across town and across the globe, welcome to another edition of Kabbalah and Coffee. I hope you're ready for some strong Kabbalah. So I hope that you have some strong coffee, right? If you have the strong coffee, then you're ready for the strong Kabbalah. If you don't have the strong coffee, well, it's also good, I guess, to get your Kabbalah just straight up without the, uh, without the coffee edge. Um, either way, I hope you're ready to, to explore some of the mysteries of the universe as well as the mysteries of our own psyche. So the topic today, the topic today is truth. And when we think about truth, things can become a little bit complicated, right? Oftentimes we think of truth and the question becomes, well, who's truth, right? Everyone has their truth. Whose truth are we talking about? But can truth really be subjective, right? If truth is subjective, is it really true? If true, if my truth is different than your truth, so can there be two conflicting truths? Or, or perhaps, can there only be one truth and we just believe that it's true because that's how we're believing? Understand my question? Yes? So what is truth? So in order to understand truth, we need to really understand how we got here in the first place, right? How did existence become, come to exist? Now, you and I know, having explored Kabbalah for a long time already, um, you and I know that the process of creation is primarily through a mechanism called tzimtzum, right? What's tzimtzum? Tzimtzum, typically translated as contraction, it means essentially a concealment of the divine light, of the divine influence. And this is predicated on a major teaching in Kabbalah that we've explored many times before. And that is that before creation, before any of this existed, there was just God and his infinite light. So it says, Hu ushemo bilvad, God and his name. And name meaning expression or influence or light. Think about a name. In general, a name is not needed for the person by themselves. So if, when you are alone in a room, you don't need a name. Why don't you need a name? Because in a room alone, to yourself, your, your identity is I. Correct? Your identity is I. I. Me. You don't need a name. It's only re relative to others that you now need a name. So relative to others, you need a name, a handle to be referenced. So if somebody wants to differentiate you and the other person, so you have a name, they have a name. If you have the same name, it's more complicated. You know, you got to find other layers to add on. Last names or initials or whatever it is. Or first name, the son of, you know. It becomes difficult in Crown Heights when you have a lot of Menachem Mendels, right? Let's just be honest here. A lot of Menachem, because that was the Rebbe's name, right? So a lot of people named their kids after Rebbe's name, Menachem Mendel, Yosef Yitzchak, the previous Rebbe, Schneir Zalman, the first Rebbe. I mean, you have a lot of these names in circulation in Chabad circles. Good morning, good morning. And it can make it difficult sometimes to, um, you know, Ed, can you take one and also pass one to Sandra? Thank you very much. Um, it can be difficult sometimes to, uh, to keep track. But the point is like this, that for oneself, for oneself, we don't need a name. It's only relative to others that we need a name. So therefore, in Kabbalah, names 
are understood to be the notion of revelation or that which is expression, expression, outward expression. So it says in Kabbalah that before creation, there was just God and his name. Just God and his name and the infinite light, which is referenced by name, the infinite light was spreading everywhere. Hence the name infinite light, light without end. Or ain't sof, the light without end. And when you, have a, when you have a reality where there's just God and his infinite light, that doesn't really give a lot of room. That doesn't really give a lot of space for anything else to exist. Therefore, as you and I know, we've discussed this countless times, and it's well documented in Kabbalah, one of the major Kabbalistic ideas of creation is that creation emerges through the mechanism called tzimtzum, which means contraction and concealment. So, for example, behind me there's a curtain, right? And the curtain dims the light of the sun that's coming through. Let's see if that's the case or if it's a cloudy day. Yeah, it's a little bit cloudy. But there's more light that comes through without the curtain. So what is the, what's the job of the curtain? The curtain is dimming the light. The same thing is true with Simpsom, although Simpsom, the first Simpsom, is more than dimming. The first Simpsom, known as the Simpsom Harishon, the first Simpsom, so the first Simpsom really almost removes the light, so to speak, and moves it to the side or collects it inward to allow a space for existence to emerge. But even after that, there are successive um, successive instances of tzimtzum, of contraction, to successively dim the light, dim the creator's influence, conceal it, contract it, hide it, diminish it to the point that a self-aware being that believes that they are their own creator can emerge. And that's us. So we exist here in this lowest dimension of reality. We are, according to Kabbalah, the lowest dimension of reality. Lowest, not spatially, not high versus low, you know, in space, but high being more aware, low being less aware. We are the least aware dimension of reality. What are we least aware? We're very aware of self, but we're least naturally aware of source. That's our, that's our status quo. We are the least aware of that which precedes us and that which actually constantly animates, vivifies us and gives us life. And that's the status quo. So it's like art that doesn't have a signature on it. Right? Think about a piece of art that doesn't have a signature. You look at the art. Who created it? Who's the artist? I don't know. And maybe imagine if the art became self-aware. I know this is a stretch. But imagine if the art became aware of self and the art said, I don't see a signature. Maybe I painted myself. Maybe I just evolved into being. Maybe it's just, maybe there's no artist. Maybe it's just me. As ludicrous as that sounds, because obviously if there's art, there's an artist. Obviously if there's music, there's a composer. Obviously if there's a book, if there's a novel, there's an author, obviously, right? We live in a world where that's not so obvious. We live in a world where it's very rational for someone to say, I believe that the art created itself. I believe that the book wrote itself. I believe that the music composed itself. Now, again, you, you tell somebody, I told this story many times, the Ramba, Maimonides was, uh, 
he had a friend who was a philosopher. You know, he was also a philosopher. Maimonides was very well versed in Greek philosophy. Aristotle, he quotes Aristotle often um, in his philosophical works. Um, but he disagreed. Obviously, he's founded on Maimonides. Is, his basis of philosophy is Judaism and his faith in God. So he had a philosopher friend who he would often have conversations with, but they disagreed on many things. But they were very good friends. So one day, you know, they were arguing about, you know, God and, you know, yes, God, no God. So, and I've told this story before, so you've probably heard it from me, but it's worth repeating because it fits in the context. So this, uh, this, this fellow, his friend, the intellectual, walks out of the room. He had to go somewhere. It's, it, they were meeting in his house. He walks out of the room. Maimonides looks on his desk and he sees a poem that's almost finished, but not finished. So Maimonides reads the poem. He pens the end, the last few lines, and then he takes a little bit of ink from the inkwell and spills it at the corner of the page. Anyway, the fellow comes back in, and he comes back in, and he sees uh, that, that he notices something has been adjusted on his desk. He looks at the desk. He sees the paper with the poem. He reads it. He says, ah! R- Rambam's name was Moshe ben Maimon. So I'm assuming he said, Moshe, calling him by his first name. I doubt he said Rambam. I think that came a little bit later. So he says, Ramosha, unbelievable. What a beautiful, what a beautiful ending to the poem. Thank you for penning it. My mind says, I penned it. I didn't pen it. I actually, by accident, knocked the inkwell. And you see, like the ink spilled a little bit. And it spilled, and then it somehow formed the, the, the ending to your poem. The guy said, are you kidding me? What, you think by accident you can exactly get something so complex, something so precise? Not only words that make sense, but words that make sense in the context of the rest of the poem that preceded it. You're telling me, you want me to believe, you expect me to believe that it happened by accident. Maimonides says, all right, someone took the hook, someone took the bait. So you mean to tell me that you believe that by accident, by evolution, by whatever, I don't know if they had those words then. This is pre-Darwin. This is 1,000 years ago or whatever, 800, 900 years ago. He said, you expect me to believe that by accident, all of this complexity that we call life just accidentally came into being without a source, without, a, without some sort of guidance from on high, without some sort of intelligence that's guiding the process. Which is more far-fetched? Which is more complex? The ending to your poem or life itself? So I say this because we live in a world, the lowest reality, which is this physical world. Kabbalah speaks of different worlds, the world of emanation, the world of creation, the world of formation, the world of action. We live in the world of action, the lowest dimension, the physical part of the world of action, we're the lowest, lowest, lowest of the low. Bottom of the totem pole. By the way, not to make us feel inferior, on the contrary, Kabbalah says the lowest has the highest purpose. So don't worry, we're still meaningful and we're still... Let's, we, we can still stroke our egos and pat ourselves on the back. Don't worry about that. But why are we called the lowest? Because relative to awareness of truth, we have the most difficult time figuring things out. Or we have the most misconception about reality than anything, than anywhere else in creation. See, we believe that the poem just wrote itself. We believe that the art painted itself. We believe, present company excluded, obviously, right? But... People believe that music, the music composed itself, that the, etc. right? But why is this? How is this possible? Why is this so? It's actually by design. Because the world is designed in a way that it emerges through the mechanism that we've talked about already, which is tzimtzum. And tzimtzum means that intentionally, 
The truth is being hidden and withheld from the creatures so that you and I don't see the real source of everything. Rather, we think that things just evolve this way or, or that we are our own creators. And essentially, it's because, in a very metaphorical way, God doesn't put his name on the painting. I mean, if you know where to look, you can find it. But it's not obvious. It's not obvious. It's not obvious that God created the world. I know it says that in Torah, and and I know Judaism believes in that. But it's not obvious because you could live a, a full life, could live 120 years, and you can be very smart, and you can learn, have a lot of information and wisdom and science and be very scientific and very philosophical. And you can say to yourself, you know, I don't know that there's a God. I don't, I don't see it. How do I know for sure? Right? It's possible to live like that? Yeah. Do we even have our own doubts sometimes? Sure. Right? How is that possible? Because it's by intention, because God created the world in such a way where you don't see it. Now, in the, in the higher realms of reality, the higher realms of existence, there's no question because there is a transparency. Because although there is a tzimtzum, and I point back to the curtains here, although there is a tzimtzum also with regard to the higher realms, the tzimtzum there is not absolute. The tzimtzum is not absolute. There's enough that's coming through the curtain to reveal the truth that there's a creator, there's a higher source. Which is why the angels, for example, in the higher realms, the angels exist in the world of Bria or Yitzira, the world of creation or formation, the souls above that are either in the world of Atzilot, very rarely in the world of Atzilot, mostly in the world of Bria, right? Higher creatures, angels and souls, are very aware of source. They don't have doubts as to, you know, is, is there a God? Did God create this? There's no question. But we have a question. Because at the end of all of those tzimtzumim, at the end of all of those contractions, at the end of all of those hidings of the light, Concealments of the light, obfuscations, if I'm pronouncing that correct, of light. At the end of that entire series of hiding the light, it's possible to not even see the light at all and to wonder, is there light? I don't mean physical light, I mean a source, a a, a divine source that's creating everything. Or maybe the machine built itself. Right? Is it possible that the machine built itself? We sometimes entertain that as a possibility. Maybe the machine just built itself. Big Bang. You ask someone about the Big Bang, so where did this you know, stuff was stuff around and it collided or whatever, it exploded. Where did that stuff come from? It was there. How was it there? We don't know. So the machine built itself. There was stuff that somehow was there and then it triggered itself, and then it evolved by itself. Again, people say all the time that it's, you know, it's so far-fetched to believe in God. Okay, maybe. But if I ask you a question, which is more far-fetched, to believe that um, the, uh, the, the musical piece, give me, what, what's a musical piece called? The um, composition. But like a, a really complicated composition like with the whole orchestra, like all these different pieces, that what's, what's more far-fetched to believe that 
somebody composed the music or that somehow the notes kind of got together and composed themselves. I'm pretty sure what you would tell me. By the way, I do also know that we live in a time where you have artificial intelligence. And now you can feed music, for example, into a machine and the machine computer, and the computer can learn composition and rules of composition and become smart enough to be able to compose its own music. Do you know, that? you know about this? Yes? Artificial intelligence? Composing music and stories? Yes, this is real. It's real. In fact, today's class, this is artificial intelligence right here. <laughs> Joking. No, that's, that's not a joke. Huh? Everyone's artificial. <laughs> you guys can vouch, but how do we know that you're real? Could be a hologram. I, I could be a hologram. Who knows? No, but in reality, you have now bots that actually take news and can actually spit out an article. I mean, this is, this is already for a few years now. You have bots that actually can write basic news stories based on information facts that come in. It's a, it's a thing. In fact, there was also, I think, a, so a song recently, within the last year or two, music that was published that was created by artificial intelligence. You know, I mean, imagine you, you put in the top songs in whatever genre, whatever style of music it is, but you put in the top songs over the last, you know, 50 years, a machine can figure out what makes, what makes a song good, right? What kind of hooks, what kind of, and, 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 you know, juggle it around a little bit and you have a new composition. So what's my point? The point is sometimes the machine can build itself. And so that adds a little bit of layer of confusion because now we can, you know, we can create within the system. But where does the whole system come from? Right? The system, we believe, comes from a source. But at the same time, it's by intention created in such a way where we don't see it. And it's really hard to crack the surface and to really get to the truth. All of that is by design, which is why, getting back to the today's subject, which is truth, which is why the Kabbalists say that this world, this lowest world, the world that we're in, um, that's why the Kabbalists say that this world is a world of sheker. Olam shel sheker. It's a world of falsehood, non-truth, sheker. Whereas the higher worlds are considered to be worlds of truth. By the way, when somebody passes away, Le'aleinu, may, uh, may we not experience that. Somebody passes away, we, we always say that they've gone to the Olam Ha'emet, the world of truth. Olam Ha'emet, world of truth. Which again is fitting with this theme, that this world, this reality that we know, that we take for granted as being like the real reality, this is actually a world of falsehood. And what's the world of truth? The higher realms, which is where souls go after their, their time with a body, in partnership with a body. So what does it mean that this world is a world of falsehood, sheker, and the higher worlds are worlds of truth? Fundamentally, it's exactly what I've explained before. To what degree are we aware of the truth with a capital T? To what degree, to what extent are we aware of who we are, 
how we are, where we came from, who's really in charge, what's really, you know, what's, what's the real truth, to what extent are we aware of that? In this reality, we're only aware a little bit of that. And so therefore, it's called Olam Sheker. Olam Shal Sheker. It's a world of falsehood. It's a world of non-truth. Because we don't, we're not typically aware of truth. And even if we are aware that there is a truth, there's a difference between knowing it and knowing it. There's a difference between believing it and really knowing it and seeing it. We don't see it. We don't see it. The sun came up this morning. Yeah? Or the sun's coming up this morning if you're on the West Coast. Right? Tony, it's coming up. It's, it's somewhere there. Yeah, it's coming up. All right. Yeah, so the sun is coming up or came up. Did you see God? Saw the sun come up. Saw the sun rose. Where's God? See trees. Yeah, see trees. Where's God? You meditate. You think. You believe. You have faith. Okay, but you don't see it. We don't see it. Sometimes we have you know, big events in our lives that point us, that, that allow us to feel God's presence. We typically don't see it. It's very rare. That's why Sinai was so, was so remarkable, the experience at Mount Sinai. It was the only time in history that people saw God. Revelation at Mount Sinai, that's what we call it. The revelation at Mount Sinai. But typically we exist in a world of sheker, a world of falsehood, because we don't see the truth. And it's not a flaw, it's a feature. It's by design. By design, we inhabit a world, a reality, in which the truth is concealed. And our job is to the best of our ability, discover the truth, live by the truth, even if we can't see it. Or in other terms, in other ways, in, 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 other, um, in other words, as the Baal Shem Tov puts it, the founder of the, of the Hasidic movement, Baal Shem Tov said that life is a game of hide and seek. This life. God hides, and our, our purpose in life is to seek and find God. Are we ever going to see God? Well, God told Moses, no one can see my face and live. So are we ever going to see God in full measure here on, on, in this type of reality? The answer is no. But that's why it's a world of falsehood. It's a world of falsehood primarily at its spiritual source because we're not aware of the ultimate truth, the truth of the Creator. But what this does is this filters down into every aspect of life. And what I mean is that wherever you turn in life, it seems like the truth is complicated and it's hard to know what to believe. And this is not something new in 2020, right? This is something that's been going on since the beginning. I mean, Kabbalah, the, the, book, of the, the, the book of Zohar, the primary work of Kabbalah was written close to 2,000 years ago. And already then, there's a discussion about this world being Alma de Shakra, a world of falsehood. And Olam Shal Shekhar, a world of non-truth. And it's not just that we don't see God, we don't see truth, we don't, we don't know what to believe sometimes on a very real basis. So for example, somebody tells you something. I'll give you a better example. You're in a new relationship. In a new relationship, you're meeting somebody for the first time. You're getting to know them. And they tell you about themselves and you tell them about yourself. 
And at a certain point, you need to discuss how you feel about each other. Right? You have to have that conversation. At some point, you probably have that conversation. Yeah? So how do you know? How do you know what's true and what's not true? How do you know if somebody really feels that way or if they don't really feel that way? I'll quote now Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Sachs, who I mentioned before just passed away yesterday. May his memory be for a blessing. I'm going to quote Rabbi Sachs. He spoke once, or he wrote, I don't know if this was a a talk that he gave or, or an essay that he wrote. He was a prolific speaker and prolific writer. I remember reading it, so I'll I'll say he wrote, because I I, I encountered it in in written word. He wrote once about the Jewish law prohibiting genevat dat. Genevat dat. I'll translate what that means. Genevat dat means stealing the mind. I'm not not referring to about brain stealing. That's not, I, I don't even know what that means, but no. What is, um, what is geneva dat? It means misleading someone. So there's a law. There's a, a Jewish law of commerce when it comes to business that a person is not allowed to misre- misrepresent themselves as a customer if they're not actually a customer. The shopkeeper's law. Right? If you walk into a shop... Let me, let me give you context. We live, in a t- we live in an age when many people do shopping online, right? So let's say in your head, you're planning on buying a pair of shoes. This is a good example. Buying a pair of shoes on Amazon or on, what's that other website? Zappos. Zappos still exist? Amazon bought them, I think. I'm pretty sure Amazon bought them. Yes, do we know this? Can someone thumbs up and confirm that? All right, someone fact check me, please. I think Amazon bought Zappos. Whatever. So anyway, you're planning on buying shoes online. Or maybe you're buying it from a department store. Who knows? Doesn't matter. It's on sale. You found a deal, whatever. The problem is when you're browsing online, you can't actually try them on. I know they have now, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, They have now augmented reality, AR, where you can like see things in your space and whatever. You still can't replicate the feeling of trying on a pair of shoes and walking around a little bit and seeing how it feels. Yeah, you can see how the table or the couch would look in your home through your smartphone now. Yes, that exists now. Um, But you can't actually try on a pair of shoes and feel it without trying on a pair of shoes and feeling it. So what do you do? You have the shoe that you like, that you found. You want to buy it online because it's on sale, but you don't know which size, right? Is it a this or a that? A this size or a half a size or a... So you go to the mall and you go to a shoe store and you walk in and they say, you know, the folks there say, can we help you? And you say, yes, I'm looking to try on a pair of shoes. What are they thinking? What are they thinking? They're thinking they may make a sale, right? And if they make a sale, let's just, just work with my example here. Let's say that they earn some of their money by commission. So they make money when you buy a pair of shoes. So you walk in and you say, yes, you can help me. I'd like to, I'd like to try on a pair of shoes. And they go to the back. There's always the back, right? And they find the pair of shoes. And you say, oh, you know what? I actually want to try it under two different sizes because you've already got this figured out. 
So you, they bring it out, you try them on, you do a little walk around, a little twirl, and then you say, you know what? Thank you. I'm still deciding. I'm not going to buy it today, but thank you for your help, and you walk out. And then as you're walking out of the store, you pull out your phone, you go to the website, and you order it. Happens all the time. Happens every day, countless times. Or, another example, you want to buy a flat screen TV. Super Bowl is coming up, and you want to buy a big, huge flat screen TV. So, there's a deal, there's a sale going on online, but you're not sure because, I mean, like, how can you judge the quality of a television through your computer screen? That's like very, you know, so you decide you're going to go down to Best Buy or to your local, you know, big box electronics store and try it out and see what the deal is and see, you know, which is uh, which the better, better model, which looks sharp and which size or whatever it is. So again, you go down and you take a salesperson away from, you know, maybe other customers and you speak with them, you schmooze with them, and then you say, thank you very much. You know what? I'm going to think about it. And you walk out and right there in the parking lot, you order it. Happens all the time. And in Judaism, it's a violation of the prohibition against theft. You're stealing. You didn't steal anything. You didn't grab the flat, the flat screen and run. You didn't put on the pair of shoes and, and hightail it out of there through the mall, past security. You didn't steal, but you stole someone's mind. In other words, there's deception. You never intended on buying. Now, one second. If you tell me, but I, I, I was intending, well, then, then this is not you. This is not, your, this is not my example. My example is where you never intended on buying. You always intended on buying it online. But you didn't tell that to the salesperson. You didn't tell that to the shopkeeper. You told them that, oh, you're interested. Oh, you're interested. And you pulled them away from other customers, potential other real sales. You took their time. You raised their expectations. Then you walked out. That's called genevatat. It's called stealing the mind. Stealing a person's awareness, perception. In other words, in English, deception. Deception, fraud by deception. That's what it is. And in Judaism, it's forbidden. So I remember Rabbi Dr. Lord Jonathan Sachs, of blessed memory, he wrote about this law. And he said, what a powerful law that Judaism has on the books about how sensitive we have to be to not misrepresenting ourselves. So what's, what's the alternative? How do you go about it? In a co- how do you shop in a kosher fashion? You walk into the shoe shop, and when they ask you, can, you help, can, can I help you? You say, look, I'm not intending on buying today. I'm probably going to buy this from another, another store. Are you willing, would you still be able to help me to try on a pair of shoes and try it out? Most likely they'll say, sure, no problem. But at least you're being upfront about it. Not at least, but you're being upfront about it and you're not misrepresenting yourself. If you misrepresent yourself and you, and you pretend like you are a real customer when you're not, that's a violation. So how do you go about it being in a kosher way? Don't misrepresent yourself. Tell yourself, I'm not actually a customer in this for you right now. I'm actually just, I just want to try it on or check it out. And that's it. And then if they agree, it's up front. So Rabbi Sachs said, 
What a beautiful and sensitive law that Judaism has. It's like it holds us to a higher standard. But it's all, it also can be applied to human, re, human relationships. Uh, that's also, by the way, a human relationship. Sometimes we don't think of the other person in a store as a, human, as a person with feelings, with expectations, which is a, a major problem that we don't. But so often we just, for some reason, like the humanity of the other person just goes out the window in the context of, of commerce. So number one, we have to look at the other person like a human being with das, with, with a mind that we shouldn't deceive. But number two, Jonathan Sachs wrote that how beautiful would this be to apply this to other areas of human relationships. Like, for example, when dating, to tell someone clearly, I'm not intending on a serious, whatever it is. I'm not saying that one should say, but wherever someone is up to in a relationship, for example, to not misrepresent. How often is it that, that a person might say or might give the impression that they're in one place when really they're in another place, for example, in a relationship. That would also be included under the category of Genevatat of deception. So it could be deception of the shopkeeper or the worker in the shop, or it could be deception of another human being in a, in a relationship. But the point is deception is, in Torah law, Jewish law, is, uh, is absolutely forbidden as a form of theft. It's a form of theft. Stealing the mind. Deception. And I say all of this, number one, I think it's, um, it's a value to quote what I found to be a, a powerful um, connection and teaching by, uh, by Rabbi Sachs. But also, because it speaks to the nature of sheker, a falsehood in this world. Falsehood is so ingrained in this world that most of the time we're not even aware of the fact that we're doing it, right? We're not even aware or sensitive to the fact sometimes that we will be giving a, 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 a wrong impression, a misimpression, right? We'll say things all the time that we don't actually mean. And we'll tell people things that don't actually reflect the way we feel. I'm not suggesting, by the way, to be brutally honest and like, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? And uh, um, hurtful, yeah. Like, not, not hurtful, like, this is what I really think about you, like the whole day. Like, that's also, okay, there's also a place for shalom, for peace. But if it's, let me just explain what I just said. So when truth and peace collide, Judaism tells us we choose peace over truth. Right? So for example... We just had this in last week's Torah portion. So God, through an angel, tells Sarah that um, she's going to have a child at the age of 90. And she starts laughing. She's like, there's no way. My husband is way too old. So God tells God, because her husband was 99. So, so, so God tells Abraham, why is Sarah laughing, saying that she's too old to have a child? What? You don't, she, I, I can do anything. God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying that she, she's too old to have a child? When she said, my husband is, you see, what, see what's happening? God didn't tell Abraham that Sarah said that he's too old because that might cause a little bit of uh, lack of shalom by it, a lack of peace in the home over there, a little friction. So God withholds the truth 
or re refashions the truth. I don't know the right way to say it. It's a white lie. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Um, God, you know, kind of reworks the narrative saying, now why, okay, why is it important that God tell Abraham anything? You know, it seems to be just, you know, sharing what somebody thought on their own. That's for another conversation. I guess this is something that Abraham needed to know on some level. And God certainly is the one to, to know that. But when God reported it, he basically had her falling on the sword herself and not, you know, stabbing her husband with it. So this, from this, our sages, this, uh, the Talmud says, from this we learn that in order to protect and promote peace, shalom bayit, peace in the home, you're allowed to sit, you're allowed to, you know, misrepresent the truth a little bit. Now, should we wantonly lie and whatever, you know, live with, with deception and lies and a whole, you know, obviously not. But, you know, if there, there, there are some truths that shouldn't be said because we know that it's going to create conflict. And there's ways to word things to promote peace as opposed to animosity. And we're always encouraged when it comes to peace versus truth to choose peace over truth. There's a, um, it's a beautiful medrash that talks about God consulting with various forces in the universe that he created, obviously, with regard to whether or not to create human beings. So it says, God consulted, I forget the order, God consulted wisdom. Should I create human beings? And wisdom said, sure, people will be wise. Sounds like, sounds like good for business. And then God consulted, I don't remember exactly the whole, you know, all, all, the, different, uh, all the different ones. God consulted, so wisdom said yes. Truth said no, because human beings are not going to be truthful. Um... Peace said no, because human beings are not going to be peaceful. But there was another force that said yes, and I forgot which one that was. So you had like two yeses and two noes. Are you with me on this so far? No. Donna, go ahead, ask. I'm not clear. So how did these forces, I thought God was the only force. And where did we learn this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is the Medrash. The Medrash is imagining whether or not it actually happened like this, I don't know. But it's kind of like, it, it's discussing the nature of, of human beings. Like, good thing, not a good thing. Good that we're around or not a good, good thing. So God is consulting. Obviously, these are energies and forces and realities created by God. But again, it's kind of like, I, I, I don't view it as a literal conversation, but more of like a discussion. Like, the human being. Does the human being pass the truth test? No. Does the human being pass the peace test? No. Does human being pass the wise test? Yes. And then there's another thing that also was, was a good thing. So the measure says that what did God do? He took peace and he threw it to the ground and he created human beings. In other words, he said peace. No, sorry, truth, truth. He took truth. Truth said, don't create human beings. Again, right, this, 
imaginary conversation. Truth said, don't create human beings. They're not going to be truthful. And God says, God ultimately takes truth, throws it down, and creates human beings. The commentators ask, but what about peace? Peace also had an objection. There was truth and peace. Are you with me on this? I know I'm not doing a great job in representing this, but hopefully enough is coming through where, it's, where we can piece it together a little bit. So again, truth and peace were the two nays, like don't. So what is it? God took truth, threw it down to the ground, and created human beings. And as God said, truth will, have, truth will have its day, truth will, you know, we'll have to deal with truth another time, but let's go ahead. But what about peace? Peace also had a problem with human beings. There's a beautiful commentary that says, once you do away with truth, you can have peace. Right? Once you put truth down to the ground, once you do away with truth, then you can have peace. Because sometimes, oftentimes, the, the, the greatest enemy against peace is truth. Where somebody says, no, this is how I feel. And this is, a, right, I have to be true to myself. It's like in an argument. Right? I have to dig in my heels because I believe that I'm right. Okay? And the, whole, and the whole relationship is going to blow up because you have to be right. You have to be true to yourself. So that's what I mean by sometimes we need to push away truth for peace. Now, all of that, though, is only when there's peace at stake. But otherwise, truth obviously is a very, very divine value. And again, when it comes to Jewish law, Jewish law reminds us that if we're in a store, we have to be truthful. If we're in a relationship, we have to be truthful, right? Unless, again, shalom bayit, to, 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 you know, to, to not hurt the other, okay. But that's the exception. The rule is we live with truth. But the problem is we live in a world in which there is so much deception. There's so much non-truth. And it's not only for the sake of peace for a higher value. It's for the sake of getting what we want. It's for the sake of, of winning, right? And sometimes we can find ourselves also misrepresenting ourselves, also hiding the truth for our own self-gain. And the only reason why this is possible is because of the tzimtzum, the curtains, the concealment. Everything begins with the tzimtzum. If we lived in a reality that was not this reality. If we lived in one of the, on one of the higher planes of reality, where the truth of God was obvious, and the light, the infinite light was still shining, and we saw the author's name on the book, and we saw the artist's name on the art, and we saw the composer's name on the music, if we saw it clearly, if the light was shining brightly and the truth was obvious, we couldn't be in a state of falsehood. We wouldn't be in a state of non-truth. It's only because of the reality of tzimtzum, of the concealment of truth, the ultimate truth, that the smaller concealments of truth can happen. Are you with me on what I'm saying? It's the big concealment of truth that allows for this world to be built on a platform of misrepresentation. In other words, the foundation, I, I, it's going to sound a little harsh, but this is what Kabbalah says. The foundation of this world that we live in is, mis is non-truth, is, is falsehood. The foundation of this world is false. 
And therefore, it's no surprise that it seems like everywhere we turn, there's some element of falsehood. That's what it seems. It seems like this because the foundation is false. And again, I need to be very clear. It's by design that this is so. Because God had all those worlds, all those realms that were true, that know the truth, that are sensitive to the truth, that are aware of the truth. And God said, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing with the tzimtzumim. I'm continuing with the concealments. I want a reality where my truth is hidden, where, 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 where the lies are, seem true. And I want people in that reality to still discover the truth. And then it's going to be meaningful. Because for an angel to proclaim the reality of God is no big deal. In Yiddish, we would say there's no kunz. Kunz means a trick. There's no trick. There's no, there's no big reveal. There's no like, surprise, I found you. Obviously, I'm not hiding. God created specifically a realm where truth is hidden and lies abound. Lies, L-I-E-S, abound in order for this activity of discovering God to be meaningful. But again, in this reality predicated on the ultimate lie that there's no God, it's not surprising that every other lie in the book is also reality. And by nature, reality, truth, is concealed. So in short, we live, as Kabbalah teaches us, in Alma de Shakra, or Alma de Shikra. We live in a world of Sheker, a world of falsehood, a world of deception. So deception is everywhere. So what's true? So Kabbalah teaches us that there's only one true thing in this world. There's only one true thing. Something that no matter how you encounter it, when you encounter it, where you encounter it, it will always be true under all circumstances. And that truth not human beings, I mean, we're, we're as susceptible as anything to, to falsehood. The one thing in this world that is true, with a capital T, is Torah. Torah is truth. Let's understand how this works Kabbalistically. This is a very important piece of our conversation. The Torah, let's start before, let's start, let's, let's start with other things. The reason why the world is founded on falsehood, or the way that works is because the evolution of reality is such that there are tzimtzumim, there are concealments at every stop along the way, right? The light is removed and then it shines again with a cow. We spoke about that before in previous sessions, but that's also um, concealed and then it's concealed further and further and further and further and further. So it's like, imagine, again, it's not, we're not meant to... De- depicted in in imagery, but if we were to imagine something, imagine a big, large amount of light, very broad and and wide, that gets filtered down, 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 kind of like a a cone shape. Like think of a, um, you know, like a snow cone cup, you know what I'm talking about? Like those, the triangle thing. So very broad at the top, narrow, 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 till the bottom, until us, we get like a drop of light. And even that drop of light that we get, it doesn't even seem like light, spiritual light. It seems like, you know, whatever. It's all part of the, the machine itself. Okay, that's, that's, that's the, our reality. So the way, and, and the word I'm going to use now is hishtal shalut. Hishtal shalut means the, the successive evolution of the worlds. 
So Seder Hishtal Shalut, the way things evolve is through Tzimtzum. There's one thing that, that comes down through the evolution of the worlds, but doesn't get affected by Tzimtzum. I'm going to say that one more time. There's one thing that although it passes through the same checkpoints, it doesn't get affected by the tzimtzumim, by, the, by those contractions, by those concealments. And that is Torah. So in general, if, have you ever been on the subway in New York City? Yeah, subway? Okay, everybody. Mostly everybody, I'm sure. If not everybody. So you know when you're in Manhattan, you're in the city, so you can take, there's two, on the same line, there's two types of trains. Unmute yourself if you can know what I'm saying. What, what are the two types? Unmute yourself and jump in. Express the train. Ah, express and local. So what's the difference? The local stops at every stop. And at every stop, more people get in and people get off. In other words, the car is influenced by the stops. Are you with me on what I'm saying? So you stop. So you're going from Brooklyn to New York, to Manhattan. All right, I've done this, I can't tell you how many times I, I've, I've done, that, uh, done that journey. Right? Crown Heights, by the way. Right? Crown Heights. Eastern Parkway and Kingston Avenue, the number three train. Fantastic. You take the three. Next, you know, next thing you know, you could be in Manhattan. Just, uh, just give it a little bit of time. But you know you can take the express once you're in Manhattan or whatever it is. And I remember the lines exactly. Does the three have an express and a local or is that just the four and the two? Whatever it is. Bottom line, two and three. Okay, whatever. It's, it's, been, it's been a few years since I've, uh, I've... You can take the local or the express. And the local stops at every stop. You're stopping at 14th Street. You're stopping at 18th Street. You're stopping at 21st. Every few blocks you're stopping again on the local. And the express... Next stop, 34th Street. So what's the difference? Well, one, you get there faster, right? But also there's the makeup, and again, I'm using this example very specifically. There's the composition of your subway car. The people in your car, yeah? When you're going express from point A to point B, so nothing changes in the car. I mean, unless people are going, you know, walking through, which sometimes happens. But if that's not happening, your car is your car. The people in your, in your train, in your subway car, that's it. You're on this journey together. No one's getting influenced by all of the places that you're passing by. But local, oh, local is different. Local, 14th Street, people getting out, new people are coming in. Maybe you get jostled a little bit. Maybe somebody, yeah, you give a seat to someone who needs it. Yeah. Then you stop again. And again, the same parasha repeats itself, the same thing. People getting off, people getting on, and so on and so forth at every stop until you get to 34th Street. And by the time you get there, it's a totally different ballgame, totally different scenario. It's exact, the local stop, the local train is the Tsimtsum example. Now, it's not exact, obviously, right? It's not brighter, diminished. It's not um, spiritual, physical, obviously not. But the notion that at every point along the way, there's some, there's some change that happens, that's what I'm trying to evoke with my subway example. The local train, every stop along the way, a some, something is changing. The express, no change. 
The Torah takes the express line down, Seder Hishal Shalut. The Torah also begins in the spiritual realms with God and also manifests itself down here on earth, but it doesn't go through, doesn't undergo the process of tzimtzum. Are you with me on this? This is very important. Torah never is exposed to the notion of tzimtzum, contraction, and, and, and the, the hiding of the light to the point that the Torah is, is, is radically altered by the time it gets here. That's not the case. The Torah is not radically altered. Everything else is radically altered. We are radically altered from the way our spiritual um, antecedents or antecedent looks like looks. We our this form of soul and body down here looks very different than the way our souls looked above. Without a body and not in this physical world. It's radically different. But Torah above and below, Torah remains untouched. Torah remains pure. Again, Torah takes the express and we took the local. We're affected by tzimtzum, radically affected by tzimtzum along the way. So the, the, the train, the way it looks as it reaches planet Earth is radically different than the way it started back in Brooklyn. Because obviously Brooklyn is kidding. Right? So, so it's radically different. Whereas Torah remains pure. That's why, and we're going to get to this inside. I know, we, we've, uh, last week we, we schmoozed for a while. This week it's, we're going to get inside to chapter 30. Guaranteed. That's why chapter 30, you'll see the major theme of the chapter is the notion of truth and the notion that Torah is the only thing in existence that maintains its purity and its truth. Which is why that in a world of confusion, in a world of chaos, in a world of falsehood, in a world of mistruth and non-truth, when we study Torah, it's a breath of fresh air. We're studying not more of the same. We're studying pure divine wisdom and more important than divine wisdom, even, even more important than, divine, than the fact that Torah is divine wisdom, it's divine truth. And in a world of, of lies, Truth is a wonderful, wonderful breath of fresh air. Donna, go ahead. Once we step out of studying Torah, or even if we have internalized it, we have to interact. Yes. So how do, how do, how do we do that? Yeah, so that's why. Excellent. So your question is, well, it's great. You study Torah and, and everything is, is normal. It's true. It's, it's direct. It's straightforward. It's meaningful. It resonates. But then what happens after the Torah study? We've got to walk back into this, into the fray. Good. That's the ultimate challenge. The ultimate challenge is, well, first of all, it's stepping out and stepping in, but then it's stepping, well, hold on. It's stepping out of the world, stepping into Torah study. That's important. That's, that's a very important step. But equally important is stepping back out of Torah study into the world and to try to integrate the Torah's truth with the world and to try to influence those around us with elements of the Torah's truth. And it's not going to be perfect. We're not going to be batting a thousand. You know, I mean, not even um, Ted Williams batted a thousand. Right? It's, 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 we're never going to be perfect. But what we try to do is immerse ourselves as, uh, as much as we can in Torah 
to then draw back into the world. It's similar to, you know, a person who practices daily meditation and maybe daily prayer and other spiritual practices and says, you know what, I, I really need this in my life every single day to get centered and to, to or yoga, right? Or to get centered and to, to get in touch with myself and in touch with my truth so that I can then, you know, live a balanced life. And that's fantastic. But I would say even greater than things that we ourselves are conjuring up, which is also powerful, is when we encounter Torah, because Torah is a, a, a space of truth from an absolute place. Absolute truth with a capital A and capital T, stemming from the top and unfiltered, pure. So that's the power of Torah. Torah is not subject to the falsehoods of this world, which is, by the way, why, and I don't want to jump too, far, too deeply into this point, but I'm just going to make the point and jump right out of it, and we're going to jump into the text. So I'm telling you right now, it's going to be a very quick, a very quick ch -ch -ch. But when we take Torah and try to make it work with, and when I say make it work, I don't mean to influence the way we look at the world. We're meant to do that. But when we try to adapt Torah to modern ways of thinking, we're compromising this truth. Well, no, the Torah, well, no, it didn't really mean that. It means uh, we, we got to change it to fit. Change it to fit means you're now taking the local. It's no longer the express. You want to take the local? You already have the local. You want this? You already have this. You want Torah? You got Torah. The one thing that's untouched, you want to touch it also? Why? What's the point? <laughs> Let it be. Like, the one thing you want... Again, I'm not going to wade too deeply into that and, and what, what exactly I mean and what exactly that means, but just in general. Torah is Torah. The best thing we can do is have a space that's still untouched. Have a truth that's untainted by, by the falsehood of the world. To, to also take Torah and to, and to, and to, and to, to make it conform to the whims and fancies of, of whatever era it is, if Torah, if Judaism at any point in time fully adapted to the culture, not the culture, to the ideologies of the time, Judaism wouldn't exist. Wouldn't exist. It wouldn't exist because we would have been Romans. We, it wouldn't exist the only reason Judaism exists is because Torah wasn't touched. That's it. That's why, that's why, it's, why it's here. Because Torah was always put on the express train and was never touched. If at any point it was touched, if at any point it became, you know, you know what Judaism is? It's basically Roman life. If, that's ever, if that ever happened, I'm not saying if some, of course some, but if that ever became the thing, when the Romans went, Judaism would have gone. There are people today who say that you don't need Judaism. Because what is Judaism? Humor. And in America, we have, I've seen essays on this. I'm not making this up. I've seen intellectuals, philosophers write about this. Judaism is primarily a culture and a humor and whatever, and that culture has already influenced America. 
So we don't need Judaism. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Jew wrote that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what is Judaism? Judaism is a culture. It's a thing. It's, and it's, but it's, today, it's so part of American society. We won. We influenced. We don't need Judaism anymore. We have America. Good. <laughs> Just don't touch Torah then. It's fine. It's like, there's no law that says you have to believe something. Believe whatever you want. Keep Torah, just, just don't touch Torah then. It's fine. America is fine. It's wonderful. But Torah is Torah. Let's not, let's not mix the two. We, Torah is powerful because it remains untouched. Torah is truth. And in a world of confusion, in a world where it seems like we don't know sometimes what's up and what's down, right? What, what's, what's right, what's wrong? I don't only mean, you know, right now. I mean in general. Right? Kabbalah wrote 2,000 years ago, it's a world of falsehood. The idea of, 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 of mistruth is, is not a new thing. In a world of confusion, we have the Torah that provides, that not provides, that is truth. By definition, it's divine truth. Toba, go ahead. Um, there's this other thing going around. Since Jews are a people and we concentrate on ourselves as a people, there's something really awful about that because we should be concentrating on the world as a whole. And this is really disturbing. On one hand, this society is diversity, diversity, diversity. You know, this culture, that culture. But Jews are made to feel guilty if they're pro-Israel because they should be pro the whole world. And this is really disturbing to me. Natan Sharansky speaks about this in his latest. So, um, I, I haven't, I haven't read. I was wondering what. No, you I, think about that. I hear you. I hear you. I have. I'm not. I'm not up to date on on on, on Sharansky's writings. Um, well, other than him, it's just. No, I hear you. I, I'm just thinking. I think I met him. I think I saw him about a year ago in uh, Washington. At the National Jewish Retreat, I think he spoke there. Anyway, whatever. My point is like this: I, I can't, I, I can't comment on something if I if I don't have like that firsthand. If I have, I, I can't comment on something, you know, very quickly like that that I haven't read and, and had a chance to to integrate and to really think about. But I will say this: I don't think there's anything wrong with a Jew having responsibility for or or, or perceiving feeling a responsibility for the larger, for the macro, along with the micro. I don't think it's a contradiction. I, I really don't think it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction either. Yeah. I don't think it's a contradiction. I think, I think the premise is faulty. Jewish culture no. may feel like something wrong if you concentrate so, on yourself. I, I hear you. I hear you. So let me just, I, I, want, to, I want to jump inside to the text. I hear you. I'm just going to end with this. I'm just going to make this comment and then, and then, and then we're going to move. So here's, here's the one point that I'm going to say. I don't see a contradiction. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see it. I, I think that to point them as, as, as inherently conflicting is a misrepresentation. I don't, think that I, I don't think that having a dinner together with my family means that I don't care about other people's families. I don't see a difference. I don't, I don't see a contradiction. I can have my family and I can care about your family. And it's not a contradiction. It doesn't mean that every time I have a family dinner, 
Whatever. Anyway, the point is, it's not a contradiction. I can love my family. I can love my neighbor. Right? In different ways. <laughs> and it's healthy to love. Right? Yeah? It's good to love your spouse, and it's good to love your neighbor, but maybe not the same way. Right? And I think that's, it's healthy. I think every rational human being would recognize that there's a healthy boundary that we create between the ways, between this and that. I hear you. I would have to look into it and, and really figure out that philosophy. Um, I hear how that's, you know, bothering you, and, and, and I'm with you. What I would say is like this. I don't think it's a contradiction. If somebody says it's a contradiction, I would fabrang with them and say, look, let's have a schmooze here, right? Let's have a fabrang. Let's have a conversation about this, and let's discuss it. And maybe there's another point. Maybe there's another point that, that is true. Maybe we need, maybe the point is that Jews should do more for the larger society. Why not? Why not? Is it, is it good to do more? It's always good to do more. I, I don't th- to me, that's not a problem. It's not offensive. Somebody says that Jews could be advocating more on behalf of others. Sure. Should we advocate on behalf of ourselves? Absolutely. Is it a contradiction? 100% not. Anyway, but that's my rabbi way of, 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 of responding, which, you know, rabbis like to say, you're right and you're right. So, listen, I, I, I know that that's the rap, uh, the, the, um, the, uh, um, Reputation, but nonetheless, I don't, I don't see a contradiction. And if somebody says, you know, why are you so focused on, you know, the massacre in Pittsburgh and the synagogue, but you're not focused on, you, there's no outrage when there's another um, horrific thing that happens, I would say yes, that's a good point. I would say also that it also, there's family, fam, there's, there's something that hits family and something that hits the larger family. So there's the individual family, the larger family. But is there always room for improvement? Yes. Okay, let's jump into chapter 30. Again, I want to refocus on the idea of truth, the idea of Torah, because that is very, very much the topic of chapter 30. So we are on page 65. Chapter X, well, all right, chapter 30. We got the Roman numerals here. Um, At the bottom of the page of chapter 30, at the bottom of the page of 65 is chapter 30. Here we go. We're talking about Actually, it's interesting, we're talking about peace and unity and how that happens when we have an influence of pure, infinite light. Now, again, the vehicle to carry that pure, infinite light into this world, into a world that is built on confusion and concealment, the space, the vehicle that transmit pure, infinite light, I'm telling you, this is where we're going to go with this, is Torah. But let's go. The vehicle for drawing down the essential Ein Sof light in order to, sit, to unite and synthesize the two letters Yud and He, Remember, Yudin Hei is Chachman Bina, is Torah. Top of 66. On the verse, the verse comes from Isaiah. On the verse, if he holds on to my strength, he will bring me peace, he will cause me peace. Our sages commented, we studied this section of Talmud last week, that, that our sages comment in the Talmud, whoever studies Torah, which is euphemistically known as my strength, God's strength, Whoever studies Torah makes peace among the hosts of above and peace amongst the hosts of below. So in other words, when we study Torah, we create peace above in the spiritual realms and we create peace below in the physical realm. What does it mean though Kabbalistically? It refers to the two unions of the four letters of God's name. Remember, God's ineffable name, the name that we don't pronounce the way that it's written, is comprised of four letters. There's a Yud and a He, and a Vav and a He. And Kabbalah understands that these four letters are divided into two groups of two. Yud and He, 
and then Vav and He. And each one consists of a state of either fragmentation or unity. The Yud and the He can get along or they can be in conflict. And the Vav and He can get along or they can be in conflict. And so what creates peace amongst the hosts above and below? In other words, what unites the Yud and the He above and the Vav and the He below? It's Torah. It's studying Torah. So look at this. Peace among the hosts of above refers to the interrelation or the connection, the unity between the two letters Yud and He. And the hosts of below refer to the last two letters of the name of Havai, God's name, which are the Vav and the He. So again, studying the Talmud says, whoever studies Torah, my strength, Mu'uzi, my strength, makes peace above and peace below. Kabbalistically, what does it mean, peace above and peace below? I told you last week. The commentaries in the Talmud, they explain that peace above means that when you study Torah, when you go to heaven after 120 years, so the heavenly court is not going to be divided. The heavenly court will say, yes, send them to heaven, send them to, uh, to, to paradise. And below means that you'll have a peaceful atmosphere below. That's according to the simple understanding of the Talmud. The Kabbalistic, the mystical understanding of the Talmud, of this Talmudic statement is, peace above means the Yud and the He are getting along, and peace below means the Vav and the He are getting along. And by the way, you might be thinking, well, why are the letters of God's name fighting? They're not fighting, but they represent different energies. The Yod and the Hay of God's name represent Chachman Bina, supernal Chachman Bina. We know Chachman Bina in the human being are very different, and also on a cosmic level, they're very different. Chachma is theoretical, Bina is practical. Chachma is abstract, Bina is concrete. Chachma is unified, Bina is divisive, different pieces of information. So Chachman Bina are not on the same page inherently. How do they get on the same page? As you and I know over the last few weeks or last few sessions, different forces get on the same page when they're exposed to a force that transcends them both. When you introduce a power that transcends both of the particulars, that can join the two together. Like we said before, you have two different, um, not before today, but in previous sessions, you have two different officers of the king who are bickering with each other. But when they stand in front of the king, they're equally submissive to the king. The angels above, Michal and Gavriel, we actually read about Michal and Gavriel this last Torah portion. Michal is the angel of kindness, and Gavriel is the angel of severity. In the story of Abraham, when the three angels appear to Abraham, Michal is the one who tells Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a kid. Mazel tov. Remember she laughed? Yeah, remember that story? So the angel Michal is the one who gives the good news, and Gavriel is the one who overturns Sodom. So you can imagine as they're traveling together, one is like, it's so beautiful. One's like, ah, I'm going to destroy it. So different energies. But when they stand in front of God, when they stand in front of the king of all kings, when they stand in front of the infinite, they surrender equally. There's no fighting anymore. It's an experience that brings, a bigger experience that brings them together. I've used this example before in previous sessions. 9-11, for example. Yeah? It can bring New Yorkers who ride different subway trains. Some take the local and some take the express. And the locals versus the express. You don't want to get involved in that typically. But something like 9-11 happens, something big, something sobering, and now everyone's getting along. Now, does it last? It fades. But there's something about a greater experience to draw two opposites together. And so the same thing is here. When you have an influx of the Ein Sof light, of the infinite light, it brings together the Yod and the He that could otherwise be diverse and distinct 
Not only that, but contradictory, it can bring, it can fuse together. It's the glue that holds the different things together. In a relationship, in a relationship, the Talmud tells us, Ish, Isha, man and woman, Ish, Isha, they both share two letters, Aleph and Shin, Ish. What's different is one has a Yud, Ish, man has a Yud, Aleph, Yud, Shin. Isha, woman has Aleph, Shin, Hey. In other words, one has a Yud and one has a Hey. The Talmud says, if the couple has God in their life, the Yud and the Hey, Ish v'isha, they'll get along together. If there's no God, if there's nothing higher than Ish, if you take out the Yud and the Hey, take out God's name, fire and fire. And what happens when fire and fire collide? It's a volatile experience. Again, in simple terms, the Talmud is telling us what is the greatest help for a relationship? Sharing a higher value. It's having something, share, believing in something greater than self. And then when I feel like I'm not this or they're not that or whatever it is, when I feel something, you know, when I feel my ego, I can, tell my, I can walk myself away from that place of conflict and say, one second, I'm getting caught up in my ego, but what's that, what are we dealing with here? This is a relationship and this is greater than me and this is, we're building a home together that's bringing light into the world. It's all these other bigger things and I'm going to worry about what they said and what maybe they meant and what they, the little stuff. That's going to, the toothbrush there, the toilet seat up or down, that's going to be the thing. I'm just using cliches now, right? But I'm using that for a bit of humor and, for, and you know, whatever, to just quickly get in and out of this point. But and the idea is when we have something bigger in mind, it helps deal with the little stuff because the little stuff is in perspective. Without the bigger stuff, the little stuff is the big stuff. Are you with me on that? It's like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Remember Maslow? I think it's Maslow, right? When you're worried about existence and survival, you're not thinking, how do I feel today? Am I happy? Happy! <laughs> Who has time to be happy? Are you exi- do you have food to eat or not? So it's like, what's, what, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about God and purpose and, and what are we doing together as a family to bring more light into the world, into the community. You're thinking about big things. The toothbrush and the toilet seat are not even on the radar. It's not even a thing. You take God out of the picture. All right, now you have a lot of time in your hands. <laughs> now, good luck. And now it's like every little thing is a thing. Anyway, I'm, obviously there's no magic, and it's always work, and I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that there's a magic formula, but the point is that there is this notion of when we introduce something greater, higher than, it can help bring the particulars together in a greater way. So, when we study Torah... Because, and here's the missing, or maybe not the missing piece, but here's the the logic. Torah channels the infinite light. Remember I said it takes the express train. Torah is the the pure light that's at the beginning, unfiltered. Everything else in existence, when it's down here, by the time it gets down here, has already been filtered and, you know, triple distilled and filtered. It's like a good good l'chaim. It's been already filtered and distilled and, and even pasteurized. That's something else, whatever. It's already been, like, reduced to the point beyond recognition. By the time things hit this world, it doesn't look anything like it looked at the beginning. Torah is pure. Torah is pure. It's the pure light. When we study Torah, suddenly all the little things, when you have the influx of the big light, the little stuff is manageable. It's more manageable. The little stuff appears little. Or we were able to see it for what it really is, which is little. So the yud and the hey, oh, I'm more chachma, you're more bina, oh, we can't get along. Really? Yud and hey? Really? 
There's an infinite light here. You and hey get along. Vav and hey. Emotion, action, I feel, I do. All right, you're getting along. There's a bigger light here. So that's the point. Torah, when we study Torah, it connects above and below the yud and the hey and the vav and the hey. Everything is unified. Let's go with the parentheses. I hope this is making sense. Parentheses. Again, I'm, I vacillate, by the way, as you know, between speaking of these concepts in very contemporary terms, which we do at the beginning, and then going inside and reading it in Kabbalistic language, I, 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 I always want to bring it back to, to what it means so that we don't lose the meaning, right? But it's also good to see it in the original words. So that's I'm going back and forth. Parentheses. This is really powerful. The reason that Yud and He are called the hosts of above and Vav and He the hosts of below, right? We said two, four letters of God's name. The Yud and He are the Yud and He are called hosts of above, the higher unity, and Vav and He are the lower ones. So it's hinted, this concept is hinted in the verse in Deuteronomy. It says, the hidden things belong to Havai, our God, and the revealed things belong to us and to our children. Now, on a simple level, it means that a person's intentions, let God judge intentions, right? What a person meant, that's up to God, for God to know. We don't know that. What we do know is what's revealed to us. In other words, action, Doing a mitzvah. Somebody does a mitzvah, they did a good deed. Somebody had this in mind, that in mind, their intention. We leave that up to God to judge. We don't judge intention, we judge by action. That's what the verse means in a simple way. You with me so far? Yes? The hidden things are for, for God, the revealed things are for us. So courts of law judge based on action, not by intention. Because how do you know what a person's intention is? Yes? Make sense? Okay, I hope so. The letters Vav and let's continue, but here's what Kabbalah says about this. The letters Vav and He of the divine name, which are also the opening letters of this word, Vihaniglis, it only works in the Hebrew. Look at the Hebrew word, one, two, three, four lines down from this paragraph of the parentheses. One, two, three, four, the third word, which is in Hebrew, in the parentheses, within the parentheses, the word is Vihaniglis. Look at that, it begins with a Vav and a He. Vav, He, Niglis. So what that means, as the Kabbalistic understanding is, that the Vav and He, the letters Vav and He of God's name, the last two letters of God's name, the Vav and the He, are Niglis. Niglis means revealed. In Hebrew, it's Veha Niglis, and the revealed things, the Vav and the He are, are prefix. Vav means and, and Ha means the, the He means the. But the way it's understood Kabbalistically is Vav and He are the Niglis, are the revealed letters. So Yud and He are the higher letters. The Vav and He are the lower letters, the revealed letters. Again, I'm going to read this inside. Don't, if you're not catching all this with the Hebrew, it's okay. It, that's why it's in parentheses. The letters Vav and He of the divine name, which are also the opening letters of this word, refer to the things which are revealed, Niglis, to us and our children. But the Yud and the He are the hidden things that belong to Havai our God, Chachman Bina. Accordingly, Yud and He are called the hosts of above, which are the hidden things belonging to Havai our God. And the Vav and He, which are revealed to us, are the hosts of below. The point is, within God's name, there are four letters, and they don't exist on equal planes. The Yud and the He exist on a higher plane. The Vav and the He exist on a lower plane. And that's hinted in the verse that talks about higher things and lower things, lower th or, or hidden things and revealed things, the revealed things being the Vav and the He. So in other words, the, higher the first two letters of God's name are the higher letters. The, lower, the, sec the last two letters of God's name are the lower letters. What it means for us is simply... So when the Talmud says that when we study Torah, we create peace above and below, it means in the yud -Hey and the vav -Hey. We create peace amongst the higher two letters of God's name and the lower two letters, the last two letters of God's name. And what it means is, it, oh, let's continue. So what does this mean? Here we go. Last paragraph right here. The Torah makes peace 
and unity between the levels of godliness represented by the letters Yud and He. And it also makes peace and unity between the Vav and He. So, what is, again, what is Yud and He? Yud and He is Chachma and Bina. Chachma is abstract. It's creative. It's ethereal. Chachma is that creative mind, creative flow. And Bina is very analytical. But Torah, when we study Torah, we can fuse the two together. We can join them in harmony. The same thing with Vav and He. Vav is emotion. And He is action. And you know, emotion is like, I feel this, I feel that an action is, make a move. Choose a path. I don't know, I feel this, I feel that. Mal, the last He is Malchut, it's action. It's decision making. So what fuses the Yud and He together? What fuses the Vav and the He together? Both on a cosmic level and a personal level, it's Torah. Why? Because Torah introduces a greater light that can bring all of those different energies in unison together. It might be said, I'm going to highlight where we're up to, second, second sentence or third line in that last paragraph on 66, it might be said that this corresponds to the teaching in the Zohar. The Holy One, blessed be He, gazed into the Torah and created the world. You ever hear of Torah being referred to as the blueprint of creation? Torah is the blueprint of creation. This, this is where it comes from, the Zohar, Kabbalah. It says, God looked into Torah and then created the world. Like, a, like an architect, right, who first looks at the plans, draws up the plans, and then builds the house, so too God looked into Torah and created the world. What does that mean? Let's understand, but this is a new way of understanding this, as you'll see. This refers to the union interaction of concealment and revelation, as in the saying, as in the creation of the world, in the beginning there was darkness, and then light is explained above. And this unification takes place through Torah. In other words, in the Zohar it says, I don't like the way this is translated. I think it's missing the, um, I think it's missing something. It's even deeper than, than the way it appears in the translation. The Zohar tells us that God looked into Torah and created the world. And how was the world created? First darkness and then light. And the way we explained it before is, what does it mean first darkness and then light? First chachma, which is concealment, because you don't yet know the idea, it's still too creative. And then light, and then you can see it. Then it's revealed. Bina, it's understood. But we said that darkness leading to light means chachma that leads to bina. And then bina leads to chachma in the summary. All topics that we discussed in previous sessions. And how do you have an interplay between light and darkness and darkness and light and chachma, bina, bina and chachma? It's because the Holy One, blessed be He, gazed into the Torah and created the world. It's because of Torah, it's because of the infinite light in Torah that you can have the combination of darkness and light that work together hand in hand in unison, even though they individually represent different energies. And this unification takes place through Torah. God's gazing into the Torah refers to the supernal light which is enclosed in Torah. What does it mean that God gazed into the Torah? God looked into the Torah? God infused Torah with the light and delight that we're talking about, this infinite energy of Torah. Let's continue inside. The goal is, ooh, it's a long, okay. Uh, all right, we're going to do a little bit more. Torah is called truth. This is, this is really the payoff of everything we've talked about today. 
Top of 67. Torah is called truth. As it is written, the Torah of truth was in his mouth. Similarly, it is written, acquire truth and do not sell it, which refers to Torah. For acquire truth is meant in the sense of the verse, acquire chachma, acquire bina. Bottom line is, he proves from two or three verses that Torah is Torah emet. Torah is called truth in scripture. What is truth? Let's continue next paragraph. The attribute of truth mediates, look at this, the attribute of truth mediates between chesed, kindness, and gevura severity to the point that truth has no adversary. The attribute of chesed has an adversary, which is gevura. Likewise, gevura has an adversary, namely chesed. However, a viewpoint that is drawn from a proper blend of them both, which is truth, has no adversary. This is the attribute of truth. Genuine truth must encompass all opposites, bearing all of them in every matter. Truth is the central point. It is the quality that enables any component to join with its antithesis. Let me explain. If you have one extreme or one side or one pole, you will always have an opposite or opposing side, extreme or pole. But truth, the nature of truth is that it encompasses all sides. Why? Because truth is in the middle. Truth is the core that has both of the chesed and the gavura. When something is true, it doesn't take a side. Truth reveals the truth of both sides. Does that make sense? We live in a world in which we celebrate polarization. And Torah does the opposite. Torah celebrates unification, not polarization. We live in a world that, be, that, that, that to be polarized is to be better. If I can show how different I am, oh, then I'm unique, then I'm special, then I can get published, then I can have an opinion, then I can be on TV if I'm different, if I'm polarizing. So we celebrate and we reward polarization. But Torah is different. Torah is truth. Torah is not polarizing. Torah teaches us the truth that exists in Chesed and the truth that exists in Gvura. Chesed is true. Some aspects of Chesed are true. And some aspects of Gvura are true. So which is better, Chesed or Gvura? No, that's a question from the position of polarization. That's, a, that, that's an ego-based question. Who's right? That's not, that's not a truth question. That's an ego question. Truth points out the truth in both. That's why he says there is no adversary to truth. Look at this line. This is the, probably the most powerful line. He says, a viewpoint that is drawn from a proper blend of them both has no adversary. If you're pure chesed, yes, there's an adversary, gvura. Pure gvura has an adversary, chesed. But truth... There's no opposite of truth. Real truth, not fake truth, <laughs> not false truth. Real truth. Real truth that's drawn from the truth of both has no adversary. How could you be opposed to the truth of both? You with me on this? You can be on the other side when there's a side, but you can't be on the other side when there's a middle. You with me on that? The middle doesn't have a side. Yeah? It's like the, the Bobby who goes to the kosher deli and says, I want an end piece from the middle, yeah, of the brisket, or the corned beef, or the pastrami. 
right? You know, yeah. Not that piece, that piece. Yeah, it's the middle. It's not the middle that is trying to make every, everyone and everything happy. Truth reveals the truth of chesed and gvura. So how are you going to be opposed? What's, what's the opposition? There's no opposition. Therefore, next paragraph, we're going to, make, we're going to just quickly move to the end. Therefore, truth endures. Therefore, truth endures. As it is written, the language lip of truth shall be established forever. The letters of the word for truth in Hebrew, emet, or aleph, memtaf, I mentioned this last week. The first, middle, and last letters of the alphabet, implying that it endures to the end as it was in the beginning. It's not a polarized truth. It's a true truth. It's all the way through. It's not only true on one side and not true on the other side. That's not truth. True is all the way in the middle, all the way down the middle from beginning to end. It is written, the beginning of your word is truth. And our sages similarly say the seal of God is truth. Right? The beginning is true and the end is true. The opening is truth and the seal. The seal means like when you're finished writing a letter and you seal it. And nowadays we don't have that. But back in the day, if you would write a letter, I mean we do seal an envelope, but like um, they would put wax seals on letters and whatnot. Right? So the beginning is true and the seal is true with God. The seal of God refers to Torah as it is written, seal the Torah among my disciples. Similarly, this is an allusion to the oral Torah. Ah, the same thing is true in Torah. You have the beginning and the end within Torah. Right? The written Torah and the oral Torah. The written Torah is the way it's written. That's how it starts. And the oral Torah is the way it's understood. So it's an allusion to the oral Torah, which is the final conclusion of Torah law as it is to be carried out, revealing the supernal will in a manner that reflects the inner intention of the written Torah. This is explained elsewhere. So what we have here, and I think we're going to stop here. Yeah, I, I don't want to get too far. Um, you know, I, I don't want to go too far and then have to go back too far. So we're going to stop right here. We more or less got the gist of, of chapter 30. And I'm just going to stop sharing and just speak and conclude and, and, and wrap things up. Here's the point. We live in a world of falsehood. We live in a world of polarization. We live in a world of tzimtzum. And we have in our, in, in our toolbox, we have one thing that's untainted, one thing that's pure, one thing that carries with it the infinite light from the beginning to the end from the most theoretical to the most practical, and that is what we call Torah. When we study Torah, we're transported to a reality that is true, that's not polarized. We're transported to a truth. And when we study Torah, we can say, you know what? Sharansky also has ideas. I'm just, I'm just pointing that out, right? When we have Torah, we can say, there's truth in that also. We could be better. We could grow. At the same time, there's value in, fa in, in, in immediate family. There's value in my immediate family. There's value in global family. Doesn't have to be a contradiction. Doesn't have to be they're wrong, I'm right. Doesn't have to be polarized. I said before the joke about the rabbi, you're right and you're right. Wasn't a joke. The reason is because when we study Torah, the more we study Torah, the more we can see to the core of everything. And the more you realize that, you know what, things that appear to be contradictory, conflicting, zero-sum game, only one opinion can stand, suddenly you realize it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be so polarized. There could be truth in that, and there could be truth in that. And when we celebrate that, then we can bring things together in a state of shalom, of peace. So in truth, the real truth of Torah can lead to peace. I said before that sometimes you have to do away with truth to get peace. And now I'm revealing something else. 
that when it com- that's when it comes to human truth. That's not so true. Right? Human truth sometimes need to be shoved away to have peace. But divine truth, which is Torah, that only helps enhance peace. So, in summation, the greatest thing that you and I could do, very practically, all the Kabbalah is there. You have it. If you want the PDF, I can share it with you. You can study it on your own. You can review it on your own. Just email me, text me, let me know. I'm happy to share it if I haven't shared it before. It's a PDF. Yeah. Here's the point. Bottom line. After all of the Kabbalah and all the theory, God's name, after all the theory, all the, all the mysticism is done, what, what's left? You and I living in a world of falsehood and polarization. And so what do we do? We live in a world where people can't get along with each other if they have a different opinion. Where people are fighting each other if they think differently about things. The more we study Torah, the more Torah allows us, first of all, it it reduces the ego and allows us to be open to listening. And it also allows us to see the truth in our own opinion, to to realize, to, to see the distinction between what's true and false about our own opinion and to recognize the truth and the false in someone else's opinion. And in doing so, if we can see the truth within us and the truth within the other, then we can get together. So, Here's my suggestion. Study Torah. It's the real thing. I know maybe other companies have had that slogan in the past. Even a local Atlanta company, nonetheless, Torah is the genuine thing. It's the express train, the light straight from the top down here. When we study Torah, we're uplifted into a different space. We're suffused with a greater light. We're influenced by truth. And it encourages us to reduce our ego and to get along. May this week be a week of truth, Torah study, and most importantly, peace, because that is certainly what we need in our world today. Thank you very much for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. I hope this has been meaningful for you. I hope this has resonated with you, and I look forward to continuing our studies together next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. Thank you. Thank you all. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Questions, comments? Yes, Rabbi, please. Yes, Donna. Uh, so getting back to your initial story about the shopkeeper yeah. and a person deliberately come, you know. Well, what should be the perspective of the shopkeeper if he has the Torah perspective, but he knows during the day he doesn't know which ones. Right. But he would expect that behavior. How can, how does the Torah help the shopkeeper deal with Excellent, that? excellent question. Here's the answer, and I think it's an excellent question, and I think the answer is going to really lift this up. You ready for the answer? If the shopkeeper knows that the customer is not going to buy or may likely not buy, then there's no gnevata, there's no deception. Are you with me? You, deception is only if there's a different mindset in both. Right? And by the way, the point of the Torah is, the Torah law is not that deception has to be intentional. Even if you're not intending to defraud, you're not intending to deceive, you're just not intending to buy and you're not thinking about the other. It's still deception. But if the other knows that likely you're not going to buy or that customers typically don't buy, then it may not be deception because who's being deceived? If everyone's on the same page. So that's what I'm saying. Torah can also help the shopkeeper. Right? And it helps the shopkeeper. It helps everybody. 
All right, so that's, that's a little bit of that, but good, good question about it. I think, by the way, it's very important, the sensitivity to have for the other. It begins with, first of all, thinking of them as a human being with ideas and feelings, and then the sensitivities follow. It's, but it, it's begin with, with humanizing the person. I've seen so many situations where people are treated as less than human, whether they're a waiter in a restaurant or whether they're an air, um, somebody behind the counter at an airport, you know, uh, air, somebody works for the airlines, or, and there's the, a delay, you know, God forbid, uh, everyone's plans are disrupted and then everyone's like totally upset, or in a shop, and people expect, you know, expect all the help and, and none of the, uh, I don't need to tell you how I'm thinking. Anyway. That's why, by the way, Yud and Hay are considered to be um, hidden for God. Because no one knows what you're thinking. Even when you tell somebody what you're thinking, they don't know what you're really thinking. I can tell you what I'm thinking. Do you know if that's what I'm actually thinking? That's why Yud and Hay, which are Chachman Bina, are always considered to be Nistaris Lashem Alekeinu. Always, based on the verse in Deuteronomy, always concealed to God. Because you and I will never know what somebody else is thinking. We don't even know what we're thinking half the time, let alone what somebody else is thinking. And even if they tell you what they're thinking. So, so some, sometimes we think, like, based on their actions, I can tell what they're thinking. Nope. Nope. Based on the actions, you can maybe tell. First of all, they don't even, sometimes they might not even know what they're thinking. Um, but that, that might be intentionally to mislead you to think that they're thinking a certain way. There's no way to know. If somebody says, but no, I'm telling you what I'm thinking. It's still Nestoris Lashem Malkeinu. The only one other than them who knows is God. We will never know what's in someone else's mind. Only the vav and the hay are revealed. Only what somebody actually did. That's all we know. All we know is what happened. And even that, what it means, is open for interpretation. Right? What somebody did is one thing, but what it means is something else. Anyway, pleasure, pleasure. Okay, good. Good to see everybody. I don't want to hold you any longer because I know it's a little bit late. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful week. Lots of blessings. Lots of Torah. Lots of truth. Lots of light. And the main thing is lots of peace. See you all. Take care. Bye, Toba. Bye, Donna. Bye, Tony. Bye, David. Bye, Joy. Bye, Fran. Bye, Marianne and Alex. Bye, Stephanie. Pleasure, pleasure. Yes. Sure. I got your chat and that's exactly my point i think you hit it, it thank you it very much my pleasure great to see you mariana great to see you how's everybody doing okay thank you very much thank god everybody are okay and and the situation it's it's a little better in chile i know it was a little bit there was some protests going on right i read about it it was a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so hopefully things yeah. are things are calm. A lot okay. of confusion. Yeah. We need Torah. We need Torah. That's that's the when we study Torah, yeah. it just it's a it's a literally a breath of fresh air. So we're studying Torah. Listen, we're studying Torah now, and hopefully we can take the good energy and keep it rolling. All right. Yeah. Good to see you. Thank you very much. My best to Alex How and the kids. Family? Baruch Hashem, everyone's good. Everyone's good. Thank God. Yeah. Then much love. We'll do. Leah and the kids. Yes, we'll do. Yes, love from us as well. All right, everybody. We'll see you all. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye, everybody.